weekend and you won't miss that. Uh, hopefully today you're doing good. Uh, you're, you're drying out from all the rain that we got yesterday. Uh, some of you, you literally just blew in this morning with the wind and it's supposed to be windy for the rest of the day. Uh, but today we are in uh, step five of this freeway series and finding our freedom in Christ. And today we're going to look at acceptance. Acceptance. And I've just been praying for many of you that today, because of God's unconditional acceptance of you, because of the way that God loves you irrationally and unconditionally, that you would respond to his love in a way today that says, I know, I need the freedom that only comes through Jesus Christ. I love what Paul said to Timothy in the New Testament. He said, Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He recognized I'm accepted with a love, with a grace, with a life that only Jesus can give. In fact, I would love, uh, and David already mentioned baptism this morning, I would love today if someone went home dripping wet from baptism proclaiming, I'm free because of Jesus Christ today. Would that not be something if it took place? It's just the first expression of obedience, the right step to choose to take when we personally come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I've been praying for many of you today that you would think seriously about that today. Here's what I believe this morning. I I believe that the distance between you and freedom, at least for many of you, is about 18 inches. You say, what what, what do you mean by that? Well, just think about it. 18 inches can make all the difference in a lot of ways in our life. If you're a professional golfer and you're on the 18th green and you're tied in the final round of a tournament and you're playing for big money in the new Buick, and you miss the cup by 18 inches, that's a pretty big deal for a professional golfer, isn't it? Uh, You not only lose the money and the Buick, you lose a lot of respect from your fellow golfers if you miss the hole by 18 inches. Uh, I I wish you could have known my dad uh, when he was alive and we lived in Lexington. My dad uh, was a mechanic, for independent dealer for Marathon, saved up to buy uh, his favorite car that he babied. It was a Cadillac. A brilliant white 1975 Cadillac Coupe de Ville with all the leather, uh, the electronics of that day, all the bells and whistles he could afford. And when he would drive back to his hometown of Dry Fork, Kentucky, or back to my mom's hometown of Whitesburg, Kentucky, that was the car he drove. Because he wanted to show everyone that that he kind of made it out of the the life of poverty that many of his family had grown up with. And my dad could drive that Cadillac 85 miles an hour on those coal mining roads where part of the roads were washed out and all the way to the bottom of a ravine. He drove so fast and the suspension on that Cadillac was so well-tuned, we would literally just jump over each one of those gaps and, and you didn't even feel it. But I will tell you, I lost my lunch more times than I can count in the back of of that bright white Cadillac. But when we got home, my dad did something special for my mom. Now, my mom had the eye disease that that I now have, and and she was completely blind. He felt bad for her because she loved to drive. Now, if you've ever had to give up your license, and some of you have had to, 
or, or you give up the, the, the driving like I have, you know it's a big step uh, in losing your independence in this life. And, and Dad felt sorry for Mom, and what he would do is he would open our gate in the driveway, which went back to our garage. He'd pull that big Cadillac to the entrance of the garage, and he'd say, okay, Hazel, it's your turn. And he would get out of the car, and she would scoot over to the driver's seat. He said, I want you to take it nice and slow. Now, you listen to me. I want you to pull it into the garage. He put a lot of faith in my mom. And let me tell you, as he would say, okay, come on forward, and, and mom would do those little rabbit starts, a little squeal of tire at first, and he would get her close, closer, closer. Those last 18 inches made a huge difference. And there were times that mom would goose the gas a little bit, and that front bumper would smack the back of that garage, and my dad would just lose it, honestly. But he never stopped doing that for her to give her a sense of accomplishment. 18 inches can make all the difference. And, and, and there's one thing that I've discovered in my life and in my spiritual journey, 18 inches can be the distance between me and freedom in Christ. It can be the distance between you and a restored relationship in your home or in your workplace with forgiveness and hope. 18 inches can be the distance between a decision that won't matter five minutes from now or a decision that will make a difference 5,000 years and an eternity from now. And you say, what's the big deal about 18 inches? And most of you have already figured it out. 18 inches is the average distance from the head to the heart. 18 inches is the average distance between the intellectual knowledge of God and about God to the deep conviction that moves down to our soul. And so what I want to do today is I want to share with you the account of a man in the New Testament that understood this distance of 18 inches. And it comes in the, in the book of Acts, Luke's writing, Acts chapter 16. And the man that I want you to meet, he's a prison warden. And in the course of just a few hours, this guy's going to make some of the most discerning and most important decisions of his entire life. And the most important decision he's going to make is to take what's up here and let it travel to here. As the story begins, Paul and Silas, disciples of Jesus, are in Philippi. And they have been preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And they've been casting out demons. And the people are unsettled. They're curious, they're interested, but they're even offended. Because one of the girls from which they cast a spirit of divination was a big moneymaker for her owners. And so they start to stir up the crowd and the onlookers. And if you've got the scriptures open, I want you to look with me in verse 22. It begins there that the crowd, they join in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered that they be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, and he fastened their feet in the stocks. And there in that cell, there in that prison of his keeping, it was business as usual, mostly quiet. The expected routine of the evening, the only thing unusual occurred about midnight. The scripture goes on to say it was about midnight that Paul and Silas, they were praying and they were singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. People don't often do that in prison. And what was pretty unusual about that was, if you notice, that earlier in the day, 
These were the men that were beaten. These were the men that were stripped, not just by the command of the magistrates, but through the direction of this prison warden. He had been involved in all their punishment, in all the cruelty, and now they're singing. They'd stirred up a whole city with the news about this itinerant preacher from Galilee by the name of Jesus. And now it's close to midnight, and I imagine this prison warden, he, he's just exhausted. And he begins to nod off from the stress of the day. But verse 26 goes on to say, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. In the middle of the night, can you imagine this earthquake? I, I, I remember one day uh, playing in high school basketball with my friends in the backyard and we had an earthquake that happened, and it wasn't a very common thing to feel or experience in, in Lexington. And some of you have experienced earthquakes before. I know some of you have family out on the West Coast, and, and we're praying for them right now with the fires that are going on out West again. But I'll bet you've never experienced an earthquake in church before. Now, I might be wrong, and maybe you'll tell me about it later, but can you imagine if right now during the service, as I'm preaching, the ground began to shake, and the lights began to sway, and maybe the cross was displaced up behind me, or the windows shattered out, shattered out behind you, uh, I think we'd have a lot of spiritual decisions getting made in a hurry if that happened here today. And if you're like me, maybe God's been working on your heart a lot this last year. Maybe you've been in God's Word and as, as again David said, you're starting to recognize, man, the Word of God is living, it is active. You know, Hebrews says it's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it's cutting deep. And maybe you've been feeling the foundations of your prison starting to shake and rumble. And maybe you've been working out in your life things with God, and you understand now what Paul meant when he said in 1 Timothy 4, 8, that physical training has some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promises both for this present life and for the life to come. And this is a trustworthy saying, again, that deserves full acceptance. What he's talking about is you and me coming to terms with God's irrational love for us and trusting in Him and choosing to walk through this life, to live this life according to His path, His godliness. It's a trustworthy way, Paul says, and it deserves our acceptance because we've been accepted. And it's not always easy, is it? We've had to face some tough stuff about ourselves. And if you've been honest to God in these past few weeks of this series, you know it's hard. And it's been tough for me as well. But when the earthquake hits this, this jail and this prison warden, it's a wake-up call for him. And he's got to answer the first question that you've got there on, on your outline this morning. How will he choose? How will you choose? Because, friends, when God rattles your cage, the opportunity to choose freedom or tragedy is near. When the jail is shaken and the prison doors fly open and the chains fall off the prisoners, what does the prisoner war prison warden do? He panics. Look at verse 27. It says, the jailer woke up. He nodded off. And when he saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. Now why would he do something that extreme? 
you know, the, the punishment in that day for a dereliction of duty. If you were in charge of a prison and you let the prisoners escape, you could be executed for letting that happen. But I was thinking about it this past week too. Earlier in the day, what had he been doing? He'd been beating these prisoners. And now their chains were gone. And so if he wasn't killed for the dereliction of duty, what would these prisoners want to do to him? Those who were free now, who might be holding a grudge against him, who were ready to exact their pound of flesh and take it out on their jailer. If he wasn't executed for letting them escape, they were going to kill him for what he'd done to them. And as all this going on, quickly in his heart and his mind, he draws his sword and he's ready to end it all. I imagine in that moment he'd like to have it all back. The events of the previous 12, 24 hours, he wished he could have a do-over within his life. Maybe he wished in that moment he wouldn't have treated them like he had, but in that millisecond, freedom or tragedy is near. And yet a prisoner by the name of Paul, in verse 28, it says, but Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Put the sword away. You don't have to do this. There is a better way. That's not what this prison wardener ex expected to hear. But the Holy Spirit was working in Paul and in Silas's life, doing what God does best. We see it in Galatians 5 in the fruit of the Spirit when it tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness. And now they're extending it to their jailer. I remember hearing as a kid growing up, Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22, that says, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals upon his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, as a kid, I had no idea what that meant. But it's not talking about revenge. It's talking about sharing what warms your heart. Sharing what warms your home, your life, with, with even the one who's trying to snuff out your flame. Honestly, if we were the prisoners, and, and this man had done to us what he had done to them, if earlier in the day he had beaten me with rods, and he had stripped me and put me into chains, and now I'm free, and on the way out he's got the sword, I would be like, go ahead, <laughs> end it all, buddy, jam it down. I'm not going to be crying at your funeral. But when he heard the words, stop. We're all here. Don't harm yourself. Can you imagine how puzzling that had to be to him? He had to be thinking, who are these guys? I mean, anybody who would spare my life after the way I've treated them? Anybody who would sing songs at midnight in an inner dungeon in stocks, stripped, anybody that would do that, anybody that would stick around after their chains had fallen off. And these guys surely have something that I want. There's something extraordinary, something unique, something different about their life. And because two disciples remembered the truth of God's kindness, another man and his entire household receive an opportunity to live. And when I say that, I mean really live. 
You see, Romans 2, 4 challenges us. Or do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing it's God's kindness that's intended to lead us to repentance? So verse 29, the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And I want you to underscore the word trembling. It's the same word for what the earth had been doing just moments before. The ground had been trembling. Now the jailer is trembling. He's coming to an important decision in his life. He's moving what's up here to here. Maybe he's been acknowledging for some time now, this wasn't what I thought I'd be doing all my life. My life isn't working out the way that I had planned. I know in my soul I am not free. Life isn't working and he humbly acknowledges something down here that, that maybe has been forming up here for a long time. And he asks what has to be the most important question that you or I or anyone could ever ask in a lifetime. He turns to these guys in verse 30 and he asks, as he brought them out, he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How can I be free in my life? How do I get on this, this freeway, freeway? It's an important question. And many of you know in one way or another, your life isn't working out these days. I mean, we sing about what we believe. We sing with a great conviction within our life. And we have to wonder has it truly reached our heart? Because there's so many times we wish we could go back and have a do-over of the last 24 hours. I wish I could have the chance to say things differently in my marriage, to do things differently in my relationships, something maybe to undo in your experience of your own in college or in school, or undo some things with your friends. I remember about nine years ago, uh, not long after I first came, we had taken up a collection, and, and many of you participated in this, of clothing and items to, to send to Master's Provisions, and they were going to forward it on to the Chestnuts in, in Kosovo for their ministry there. And we had so many of those big black garbage bags filled, we had to take them out to the barn. And, and John Stigney was taking care of a lot of that, and Bo Nichols was part of going. We had to go through all those things and kind of sort them out to different sizes, make sure they're clean and stuff. And as we're going through them, somebody had donated towels. Now, if I'm talking about you, please don't raise your hand, okay? Because you don't know where this story's going, all right? But we're pulling out these towels, and, and as we're folding them, there on a couple of these towels, in, in a bright green stripe in the middle, it said, Holiday Inn. <laughs> and I imagine... It happened like this. Somebody had heard the plea that we were collecting clothes, and they went home, and they were going through their closet and, and through their, their shelves, and they thought, you know what? I can't get rid of this. I can't throw this away, because if I throw it in the trash, well, the garbage man might turn me over to the hotel police, and then I'll end up in hotel jail for stealing their towels. I know what I'll do. I'll give it to the church. And so somebody in a third world country is going one day, I was saved by Jesus and Holiday Inn, you know, because they've got the towel now, right? When we go through our closets, when we go through our laundry room, the reality is for every one of us, we've got some Holiday Inn towels. 
Bible says we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. It says there's no one righteous, not even one. And so we recognize in that we've all sinned against the holy God. And we've all been where the jailer is. And that knowledge has to go from here, 18 inches to here, to truly make the difference. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3 in the Beatitude. He said, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He's saying, blessed are those who recognize I've got these towels in my laundry. The message paraphrase puts it this way. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God in His rule. Spiritually speaking, you can be happy if you know you don't have it all together and you know and admit it. And this prison warden has that decision to make. And friends, when God rattles your cage, which He has a great way of doing in His love and grace and mercy the opportunity is there for you too. And it's a moment to choose freedom or tragedy. But the prison warden took the opportunity to let the truth in his mind sink to his heart and he asked that beautiful question, what must I do to be saved? And the answer to that question is, is not long. Paul and Silas don't give him a sermon in that moment. They literally say in this profound statement in verse 31, Paul and Silas, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, both you and your household. That's it. Now, now what does it mean to believe? Again, we sing about our belief. We confess our belief as we talk to each other. But the fact is, if we're honest, you can believe about Jesus intellectually in your head. You can know that He was the Son of God, that He is the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, and yet not have that fact save you. See, the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and tremble. But believing that God exists Believing that, that Christ exists is not what the word believe means in this context. Because you can believe all the right things and still be lost. You see, my guess is that the majority of you in this room, whether, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you probably all believe that God exists. You might even have an awareness that, of what Jesus Christ did and, and who He claimed to be. You know, we hear a lot about atheism these days and how it's kind of spreading through our college campuses and pushing out a lot of Christian groups even. The reality is, though, atheism is a very, very small segment of the population. Most people who struggle don't struggle with the existence of God or of Jesus. You know what they struggle with? Me and you. They struggle with the concept of the church. Most people don't struggle with, with the belief in God. They struggle with the preacher or with the leadership of a church. And I understand that with good reason. But the fact is, most people believe in God. In fact, one in five atheists admit that they pray. I don't know how that works. It's like the person that was asked one day, are, are you honestly and truly an atheist? And he said, honest to God, I, I am. You know, many of you have grown up with an awareness of the work of God. And you may intellectually believe in Jesus. And that's not what Paul and Silas are, are talking about when they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
They're talking about, again, taking what's here so that it makes a difference. 18 inches here south. This prison warden has a choice, and it reminds me of what's happening in so many fellowships around the world today. You know, being in a church is a gift. I don't know how you guys think of that. Being a partner with Christ and with Christ's people is, is, is a beautiful thing. And I'm drawn, like many of you are, to worship in this place. And, and maybe you've got a family here. Maybe, maybe you've got friends here, and that makes it more magnetic. Or, or maybe you like to hear about the missions, the compassion ministries we have, and, and how it makes a difference. And there's so much to love about this place. But what I fear as a, as a preacher is that more than a few are here because my wife made me come or my husband made me come, or because mom and dad said I had to, to be here. And, and you've got the belief, but it's not the personal conviction. The question before you today is the same that was before this jailer, and it's the second question. Will you sincerely believe? Because many are alert into believing that they are in Christ when they're only near Christ. And friends, I want to ask you, can you confidently say, I am in Christ today, or are you only near Christ? There is a huge difference between the two. And I'm concerned that some of you, you're attracted to Jesus, but you're not attached to Jesus. In Luke 14, we get the, the beautiful picture in the 25th verse of large crowds that are traveling with Jesus. And Jesus turned to them and He says this to them, if anyone comes to Me, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me, they cannot be my disciple. And from that point on, many of them who were attracted to Jesus walked away because they were not attached to him. A chapter before that in Luke 13, Jesus is going through the towns and the villages as he makes his way to Jerusalem for you and me, for the purpose for which he came. And somebody asked him, Lord, are there just going to be a few people that are saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because I tell you, many will come and try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, You'll stand outside knocking and say, Sir, open the door for us. And he will answer, Yet I do not know you or where you've come from. And you will answer, we, we ate with you. We drank with you. You taught in our streets. And yet he will reply, I don't know you. Away from me, you evildoers. We can be attracted to Jesus. We can listen to his teaching. We can eat with Jesus. And yet still not be attached to Him. Friends, to meet with the people of God on Sunday morning is a beautiful thing. But to miss a personal connection with Jesus is everything. It's everything. You were made to be connected, in tune with the Master Freedom Giver, Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul said in Romans 10, 9. He said, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your, what? Heart. That God raised her from the dead, you'll be saved. It's moved from the head to the heart. And if you miss that, you miss the greatest difference. This jailer caught it. 
And he heads his life in a brand new direction. And he demonstrates what the Bible calls repentance. When a person moves what they believe in their head to their heart, when they become a follower of Jesus Christ, things just begin to change about them. It's what Jesus said would happen. It's what Paul said later, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And that change that comes, it often depends on where you were when you made that decision to, to follow Christ. I think of a dishonest tax collector named Zacchaeus who had cheated people out of their income, who'd overcharged them, and after time, he became a follower of Jesus. And you know how he responded? In Luke 19, verse 8, it said, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Now, Zacchaeus didn't do that so that he would be accepted by God. He didn't do those things so that he would be loved by Jesus. He did those things because he had already been accepted and loved and given the grace that Jesus had to offer. And when a person sincerely moves up here into their life, it's not business as usual. It's not church as usual. It's not worship as usual. It's saying, I used to do this, now I do this. I used to inflict wounds on people, now I help bind up those wounds. I used to cheat people, now I build value and worth into people. I used to take the relationships in my life for granted, now I value them rightly. So let's close this morning with this, if we can. I recognize there's a lot to do, but the third thing I want to give you is this. Well, let me back up here just a moment. Number three, what will you do? Is the last question. Real salvation leads to expressing our faith outwardly by washing wounds immediately. Acts 16 again, it says, At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and he washed their wounds. Can you feel the irony and the drama of that? The same man that had inflicted them now cleans, disinfects, bandages, and takes care of them. And he's answering that third question in his life. He's changing. And to close, look what happens next in verse 33. Immediately, he and all of his household were baptized. When? Immediately. He and his household were? Immediately were baptized. Think about this. It's in the middle of the night. I want you to notice, not one of them said, can we just wait till tomorrow so I can go and get my hair did and my nails did? You know, can, can I just wait till tomorrow? Because I've got some friends. I've got some family that I'd like to invite and to participate and celebrate with me. Not one of them said, someday when it's convenient for me or when I don't have somewhere else to go after church or something else to do. Someday when I've read more about it, talked more about it, seen more preachers or elders to study it together, it says immediately those who chose to come to faith were baptized. And on that very night that they admitted, they weren't free. They boldly expressed their faith outwardly by being baptized immediately. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance 
that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And maybe right now you're, you're here and you're thinking, Bill, if you only knew the prisons that, that I'm in right now in my life, I know I'm not free. And I know the only way out of what I'm in right now is, is through Jesus Christ and his supernatural, irrational love for me. And maybe you're thinking that, that what this jailer did, Bill, this is something I need to do. If you're not thinking about it, maybe it's something you need to think about doing. And friends, why follow his steps? Why, why choose to be baptized? Well, for the most important reason, your Savior, your leader did the same thing. And he directs you to be identified visibly with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Do you really need any other reason than that? That it was truly good enough for Christ? It should be good enough for me? When am I ready to be baptized? And, and some of you, you may have been baptized as a baby or as an infant in the tradition that you grew up in, and you wonder, do I need to be baptized again? Friends, you need to understand the pattern that shows up over and over and over again in Scripture. In fact, look at Acts chapter 8, verse 13. In Acts 8, 13, it says, Simon himself, what? He believed, and he was baptized. The sequence First belief, then baptism. It's always the natural follow-up to someone who understands what Christ has done for them. Now, we don't practice baptizing babies at the Springfield Church of Christ. We do dedicate children to the Lord. We dedicate parents to raise them in the Lord. And many of you, again, I recognize you were baptized in a tradition as a, as a child or an infant. And I want you to understand, your parents were not evil when they did that. Your parents were admitting they wanted you to be raised in the knowledge and the love and the grace of God. They were dedicating you to Him. They wanted you to have His life. And they were praying with all that they had that you would become a true follower of Jesus. And let me just say, when you make the decision personally, to be baptized, expressing your belief in Jesus Christ. You're not repudiating what they did. You're not dishonoring what they did. You're completing what they did. You're fulfilling what they hoped for and they did. And, and you're saying, I'm choosing myself to follow Jesus Christ with my life. And friends, you don't know how many opportunities you get in this moment in life. I don't know if that, that jailer ended up losing his life for dereliction of duty once his supervisors found out that the prisoners were freed. I don't know if they went on to become great leaders in the church or any of that. What I do know is you get the moment. His happened after midnight. Ours happened today. To admit that we're not free to trust in Jesus and, and not in ourselves to believe in our soul, to repent and head in a new direction and express with all that we have through baptism a new direction. And you say, I, I couldn't do that today. Why couldn't you do it today? Well, I, I just need to go to a baptism class. You just had one, okay? You could check that off your list. I don't have a towel. I don't have other clothes. We have those things. Like the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip spoke to traveling past an oasis in the desert. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Friends, 
The greatest gift of all is to know the pleasure of God in our life. Even Jesus in Matthew 3.16, it says, as soon as He was baptized, He went up out of the water. At that moment, the heavens were open and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on Him. And a voice from heaven said, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Some of you have heard that spoken over your life because you made this decision long ago and you know what it's like to live on the other side of an open jail cell. Some of you, Christ died to open that cage and you're still inside. You know, and now it's time to respond. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me this morning. And I want to pray with you, and we're going to sing a song of decision. And friends, if you're ready this morning, let's make this a day of celebration. Maybe you're ready to make this your church home. And friends, it's a time to declare that I have been baptized in Christ, but I'm ready to have the standard of Christ's love for the church in my home. I want to be part of this family. And I want my, my banner for Christ to fly clear. There's so many reasons to, to be members in the church. They were first called Christians at Antioch. You know, and a lot of people say, well, I, I love God. I just don't want to be part of the church. And yet, even husbands are told, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Membership is saying, Lord, I want to value the collection of your people the way you do. Let's pray.